been challenged about something he has said or something he's done. He didn't fast like the Pharisees. He didn't, or he ate with sinners. He healed on the Sabbath day. Thank you, my Valentine. <laughs> All righty. I'll be in trouble later. <laughs> so he teaches sort of in response to these, these things that he's done. And if, if you have a red letter Bible, you can look through the little red letter sections. They're really small. Just, just responses. It's sort of teaching. He's basically defending and explaining why he's doing these things that the guardians of God found to be offensive or controversial. Why he has the authority that his miracles show he must have. And now in chapter 4, for the first time, Mark doesn't just say that Jesus teaches. He tells us what it is that Jesus is teaching. Now that he has called his core disciples and others are starting to become more serious about fully following him. In this chapter, he talks about the 12 and the others around him. These are people who are separating themselves from the crowd and wanting to get serious with Jesus. And now it's time to draw the line and get something on the table. And here's what Jesus teaches. Verse 2. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, listen. Listen carefully. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell upon good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, Listen carefully. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or other persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still, others... Like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life, of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even a hundred times what is sown. From this chapter, we're going to answer two questions. Number one, what is the heart issue of my heart? Number two, what are some of the heart failure 
issues that keep me from winning the battle of my heart. So first of all, what is it about the heart? What is it about the heart that makes it the heart of it all? What is the real heart issue? In answering that question, we need to take a step behind this passage and see three foundational pieces. Number one, first, what is said, this teaching is a parable. And a parable is, is a, a, a story that compares two very specific things. The kingdom of God is like. It's a common parable. Comparing something earthly and everyday to something that is just as real, but not as visible. The kingdom, the rule of God. There are actually several parables in this chapter. There's three more after this one about a lamp and another one about a seed and then one specifically about a mustard seed. But, but this one kicks them all off and this is the only one that Jesus takes the time to explain very clearly what he means by it. There is something central about this parable that according to Jesus is at the heart of knowing what more Jesus really means. And now the more obvious question, how do we know that this parable is all about the heart? The word heart's never used in it. Well, let's look at the main elements of this parable, of this uh, metaphor. First of all, there's a, a sower, not a seamstress, a farmer. And what is this farmer doing? Uh, well, duh. he's planting seed. There's sower. Their seed, not in rows under the ground as we did in the gardens, but he's scattering it on the ground and it'll be tilled into the ground. And where does he plant them? Uh, in the soil, right? It's, in one sense, it's such a simple analogy. So what do these, each of these elements re- represent? Well, the farmer is not identified, but it's very clear that Jesus is talking about himself, right? Or God himself, using Jesus' words. And what is the seed? The seed is not Jesus' miracles. The seed that he's planting is his teaching. His authoritative truth. As people began to to, to just see in him in chapter 1, verse 22, they recognized That he is proclaiming not just truth about living life, but but about who he is and what that means for all of life. How do we know that he's talking about the word? Well, later on he says, the farmer sows the word. Eight times in, in, in those seven verses, verses 14 to 20, the word, the word, the word. And did you know that in, in, these, in this section of parables from verses 1 to, well, actually it starts at verse uh, 3 where he says, listen, that, that verb to hear, what do you hear? You hear a word. That word to hear is used 13 times. It's why teaching will always be a high value at Ellerslie. It's why we will have Rose Chug as one of our global mission partners Today, talk about translation of the Word. Because the Word of God is the power of God to bring us back to Him that everyone deserves to hear. And it must be scattered everywhere into every language. 
And where is the seed that is scattered supposed to take root? Well, in the soil. What is the soil? The soil is my heart. Stripped down to it, this is the central engagement of life. God, his word, my heart. Strip everything out of it. There it is at the core. God, his word, and my heart. How do I know soil means heart? Well, here's where we need to understand the, 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 the metaphor of heart in the people Jesus was teaching, and we'll see a little bit how we know that it's actually heart that he's talking about as we go along here. We're back to our opening little game. There, there's different ways that we think about heart, and, and in our world, in our worldview, when we think about truth and about hearing, what organ do we think of? Think of our head, right? That's where our thinking goes on. But in the worldview of the Bible, when they thought about, especially about the kind of thinking Jesus is talking about, it was heart that they thought of. We know that it's our brains that do our thinking, right? But we also know, and sometimes we come almost close to admitting, that our brains don't always think well. When was the last time you said, maybe in one of those sort of apologies, when you said, oh, I don't know what I was thinking. And what did your husband or your wife or your mother or your father say? Well, you obviously weren't thinking. Of course you were thinking. We can't not think. But what we're revealing is that there's something, something we're not necessarily consciously aware of that controls, that drives the way we just automatically think. The Bible calls that the heart. The heart, one way we can frame it is, is it's a deeply embedded underlying control center of our thoughts. It shapes our desires and our actions. It it controls how we see, what we see, our perception about reality that determine what we will think about something. I, I love the way Dallas puts it in his book, The Renovation of the Heart. He talks about sort of four levels of, of thinking. At the very bottom level are what he calls ideas. And he has it at another level, but I, I, I put it at the same level. Uh, ideas, central governing notions about reality which come out in, in images, symbols, powerful emotion-laden symbols. One symbol that uh, I grew up with and still talk about today is the establishment. As soon as you word the establishment, that, that evokes thoughts, and, and it, it leads to perceptions about authority, doesn't it? These are our heart. And then what happens is information comes to us, either what we see or what we're told, but we think about that information in terms of our ideas and images. And that's why American philosopher William James says, a great many people think they're thinking when they're merely rearranging their prejudices. That's what happens. Because we're not even aware of how our heart drives our thinking. But in this parable, we see that when Jesus comes on the scene, he exposes 
Well, we've seen two trajectories that, that, uh, that, that's happened here, right? Jesus being accepted by the masses. He's, there's opposition to him by the establishment. And, and every once in a while, there's going to be this explosion. Ultimately, there's a, the ultimate explosion in which Jesus is taken out. That's the trajectory of Jesus' life. They, they, they collide. But in this parable, we see that when Jesus comes on the scene, he is exposing another trajectory underneath that obvious one that both the crowd and the Pharisees will fall short on. And that is the trajectory of my heart as it encounters God's Word. Now, listening to Jesus' teaching by the lake that day, there were three different groups. There was the crowd, there's the religious leaders, and now there's this growing group called the disciples. The core of people that are buying in and truly trying to follow Jesus. Let's look first at those religious leaders, since they're the ones Jesus often takes on directly at this point. The reason Jesus takes them on is because they actually get what Jesus is making, the key issue. They just don't buy it. It's interesting how Mark has set us up for what Jesus is teaching in this parable when it comes to the Pharisees. In, in chapter 2, you have this paralyzed man that's brought to Jesus, and, and, and what does Jesus do? He declares him forgiven. This man didn't come to, say, come to him and say, will you forgive my sins? So how can Jesus forgive him if this man hasn't even asked for forgiveness? No, this man, this man came to Jesus as one that he believed and was beginning to see had authority in the big issues of life that were against him that took him out. And Jesus declares him forgiven because Jesus and the teachers of the law who are judging Jesus know that the biggest issue of life is forgiveness of sin. And then in verse 7 of chapter 2, we read, Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking themselves, How can he dare say that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. What does Jesus say? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. What Mark is saying here is that they could not make what was a sound, solid leap of lo or a step of logic. This guy has shown the authority over all of nature that is against us. Only God can do that. Ergo, this guy must be God because he is doing what only God can do and so he can forgive sins. That's, that was in their worldview that they said they held. That would be logical. But no, against their own logic, they said, this guy's blaspheming because he's claiming to do what only God can do. What's the disconnect? Jesus knew that it was in their hearts. In chapter 3, same kind of scenario. When Jesus casts out demons, they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus points out directly, he says, you guys, that's just not logical. How would, how would Satan cast himself out? That's stupid. And in between these two scenes, Jesus, in which Jesus exposes their gaps of logical of logic, Mark reveals why it is they can't be logical. A guy has come up to him to be healed on the Sabbath of all days. And these teachers of the law, the law of God, are there to see whether Jesus, on a day when it's supposed to be about God and his laws, celebrating who God is and what he wants, what he can do and what he wants to do, they're waiting to see whether Jesus will heal him. In verse 5, Jesus said, he looked around them in anger and deeply distressed by their 
stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He healed them, and the Pharisees began to plot to get rid of Jesus. What kind of heart? A stubborn heart. Now, let's just think very briefly about that other group. The group that's often in Mark and the Gospels called the crowd, with whom Jesus has this sort of ambivalent relationship. Yes, he wants them to know him, but, but they're distracting him from his main purposes. They go gaga over Jesus because of the surface things he's doing for the important things, but not hard things. He has a heart not like anyone else they've seen. He has the ring of authority, true authority. He doesn't have to beat them up with it. He just has it. And he is healing, taking on authorities that are against him. He is the man. But in the end, and remember this gospel of Mark is written after Jesus has died and risen again. And now followers of Jesus are being persecuted. In the end, Jesus, the the crowd never gets that following Jesus means a whole lot more than just free food and fulfilled dreams and feel-good chicken soup for the soul stories. The crowd has a shallow heart. And it's a parable of sower, some seed, and the soil that exposes the issue of the Pharisees. It's this paradigm, the sower, the seed, And the soil that will ultimately cull the crowd. And it's this story that challenges those who claim to be followers of Jesus as to what it all is at the core. What's the question of the heart? You see, when we think of heart, we think of the wrong kinds of things. Not the central thing. The question we want in the heart is, Do you have a good heart or a bad heart? That's the question we ask. And we all would defend. Why? Well, we have a good heart. Or we make it about how we feel. Passion. But the real question of the heart is, do I have an open heart or a closed heart? Am I dictating the story of what I will and won't believe? Or am I open to considering that there is an authority, a true word outside of myself to which I have to submit, surrender, give in and give up to totally? You can't even answer the good heart, bad heart question until you ask, am I I willing to get an outside perspective on that? And do you know where the rubber meets the road on that one? When I was working as a a manager in a large bureaucracy, I, I... I was required to take a seminar uh, with all of the managers of this department, and it, and it was a seminar that talked about how, how to be a manager who's a good leader. That was the, the, the nature of the seminar. And one of the things the presenter covered was that every manager, by definition, has, has, by virtue of the contract that's been signed, has a sphere of authority. If you're an hourly employee which means that the company you work for is buying from you your time, he owns you for what you do with that time. Now, there are different ways a manager can exercise that authority. Some styles are more helpful and for the long term than others, and different occasions sometimes require different styles, but he does have a legitimate authority over you. And then the presenter made this statement. Here's the problem, he said. There's only one time when authority matters. 
It's when we disagree. Right? It's only when there's disagreement between you and the manager that you discover whether you're really accepting his authority. And if that's true on a human authority level, would it not be true even more so when it comes to the one who claims to be the ultimate authority of the universe? The number one reason we don't get the more Jesus benefit is because more means all, all of us to get all of who he is. Jesus is the ultimate authority for me. Only when I accept him as the ultimate authority over me. And it's when we disagree on something that we figure out whether we've done that. We have all kinds of arguments as to why that just doesn't make sense, but we have to realize that underneath our arguments, especially the ones that we hold very adamantly, are are heart issues. And heart issues are not feelings issues, they are control issues. Got any control issues with Jesus right now? How do I know what my heart issue, what my control issue is? I heard a, I heard a term last week at a seminar some of us were at in Vancouver about how, how to talk in our culture about Jesus. And, and what was said is that before you can even find out doorways into people's hearts about Jesus, whether it's to a culture as a whole or I believe also to an individual, uh, they were talking about culture as a whole. What he said is, you've you got to figure out who's their big brother. Uh-huh. Who is it they're trying to become, impress? Who is it they take their cues from? This particular speaker uh, was a pastor who's working in downtown Toronto, and, and he pointed out that, that the, big, the big brother for the Toronto culture is New York, London, Amsterdam, People in Toronto want to prove they can compete as a business center with New York. They can be as liberal a culture center as Amsterdam and as influential a multicultural center as London. And he talked in Vancouver about the difference between Vancouver, where he had worked before, and Toronto. He says, in Vancouver, traffic begins to jam on the Portman Bridge, the gateway out of town, at about 12.02 Friday afternoon. Vancouver is all about chill, getting out into the environment as soon as possible. Vancouver is the ultimate work-to-play culture. Chill is what it's all about. And that's why, as my father-in-law would say, Vancouver can never produce a winning sports team. It's such a chill culture, even the professional athletes can't take it up to the top, top level competitively. Toronto? He says, you can't even have people over for supper on Friday night. Because nobody plans anything Friday night. They know they'll probably not leave the office until after 9.02 Friday night. And you can't even give them a phone call Sunday night because they're already focused on their laptop computers getting ready for what's going to greet them at 6.30 Monday morning at the office. They're dictated, but they're big brothers. But what's true on a cultural level is also true maybe even more so on a personal level. Who's your big brother? Who is controlling your heart? How do I know who my big brother is? Number one, who am I trying to impress? Well, me? I'm not trying to impress anybody. I am unique. Yeah, right. You are as unique 
as everyone else who's wearing the same clothes and has the same look as you. You have to prove your counterculture by thinking the same things and saying the same things and dressing the same way as everybody else who is saying they are unique. You've got a big brother. And you're controlled by that big brother. Who are you afraid of that would mock you if you said yes to Jesus? Do you realize those people are controlling you? Several of us from Edmonton were talking to a guy who made the Big Brother statement, and, and uh, we talked to him afterward, and, and I said, so we're, we're from Edmonton. Who's Edmonton's Big Brother? He said, oh, Edmonton has an interesting mix, but there's one Big Brother they all share, Calgary. You see, your Big Brother might be who you are reacting to. I'm never going to be like so-and-so. Many people who want to be themselves are really just being controlled by somebody or something they're reacting to. Another thing to know who or what your big brother is, what is it you have to have? What are you afraid to lose? What is it you're really afraid of? What is it you are demanding from Jesus? I will submit I will submit if, when, to know your heart, you got to know who your big brother is. Who's your big brother? And very often our words, our strong statements reveal more than we want them to reveal. Not to ourselves, but to others. Because contrary to what we like to think, it's often others who have a clearer perspective on our hearts than we do. I've, I've told the story before because it's a powerful story in my life. And by God's grace, a bit of a turning point story for me. I was laying flat in the hospital back as a brand new youth pastor in the Toronto area, having left everything behind to go there to follow God's call. And I had a collapsed lung, and in those days, you were in an intensive care unit when you had a collapsed lung. And the only person who came come see me was my pastor that I was working with. So I'd been there for one month. And uh, I came in, and, and pastor I was working with came to see me, and we started talking. And finally, he says, Mel, I, I don't know if you're hearing what you're saying, but you're talking an awful lot about your own body, your physical body. You were a college athlete. You won the national championship last year. You're strong. You're healthy. I remember sitting there and thinking, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. But how did I tell my new boss he didn't know what I was talking about? I had a lot of time those three days to think, is, is that what I believe? Maybe God has you right here right now, he said, so you can learn that to be his servant, it's not about you. Wow. I don't know exactly what he said, but that's what I heard. That conversation went right to my heart. God had me there, even one month in. And over the years, I processed that conversation, and I realized there was probably even more to it than what he said. I'd only been there one month, and I desperately wanted to prove that I was worth their investment in bringing me there, that a skinny guy from a hick town in the West was somebody 
I had no idea what my own words revealed about my heart and about my big brother. Who's your big brother that's keeping you from the soil producing the fruit God wants? From deepening your engagement with God's word in your heart. There's something else going on here that we need to see. Why does Jesus teach in parables? We might say, well, that's easy. They're like stories. They're word pictures. And they're so much easier to get. I like pictures. I like stories. Well, if we think that, we'd be wrong. As a matter of fact, the reason Jesus says he uses parables is almost the opposite of that. Verse 10, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. That's a key statement, by the way. These people are intrigued. The 12 and the others around him, those who are are separating themselves from the crowd, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm sure what you're saying is true here. It means something for us. We need to know what it is it means. What does that tell you? It tells you they are not shallow and they're not stubborn. There is something about their hearts that is open to Jesus. And then that interesting statement, which includes a a quote from the Old Testament. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may ever seeing but never get it. Ever hearing but never understand. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, there's an interesting tension in this little scenario. We're not going to explain everything about it. The difference between these people is their heart. But somehow, God is the one who changes people's hearts and determines people's hearts. It, it, it's a tension. What's my responsibility and what's God's? That's, that's a big tension. But the big points he wants, we, we, he wants them to see here is, folks, crowds may be following me right now, but when the crunch time comes, when they really understand that for me to be the authority for them, I need to be authority over them. And what all that means, they won't be there. And don't let that surprise you. The kingdom of God is here, but it will not be what even you think right now. And then Jesus says something that's almost a about face from what he's just said. Verse 13, then Jesus said to him, don't you guys get it? How then will you understand any parable? How does that sound to you? Does that sound somewhat condescending or does it sound frustrating on his part? How can he say on the one hand that they've been given the secret, but now he's saying you guys don't get it? Well, two things. Number one, given the secret does not mean they understand everything, okay? This is, that's not what Jesus is saying. To be given the secret is that they understand that Jesus is the king. And they have responded to his call to follow him. But he's warning them that they still don't understand all that means. They might think they do, but they don't. And here's the kicking kicker. He, he's taking this parable about the heart And as he applies it, he's telling them what this parable will mean for them and the struggles they will face in following him. Not for the crowd, not for the Pharisees, for them. Because there will be some of them, some of these others and some of the twelve who will fail the heart test at crucial times. Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will deny that he knew him. Where Jesus takes them as he interprets this passage for them is to warn them that after you start your journey with Jesus, there will still be heart failure factors that can take you out. If you want to finish with a strong heart, there are some things you have to look out for. 
One general one and two specific ones that come out of the general one. Number one, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word and that was sown in them. What's he say? Well, it seems to me this is, this is a, a general statement out of which the other two flow. Remember how several times in this book we have seen how the way Mark presents Jesus is he's portraying him who is the one who has come to deal with what happened in the Garden of Eden. He's come to reverse what happened in the Garden when humanity fell from God and in so doing gave up their rulership of the universe to the enemy of God. How did Satan come to Eve? He did not come with a club to threaten her. He came with an idea that intrigued her. An idea that made her rethink everything that God said. An idea that God was holding out on her. An idea with an image, a powerful image, appealing fruit. An idea that his authority was not good for Eve. And we can be our own authority. You see, here's the deal. Even when God gives us a new heart, even when he comes into us by his spirit, we still have what the Greeks came to term an Achilles heel. And that Achilles heel is to think that we know what's best for us. God does not. And when we hear God's word and read God's word, the way that idea that Satan has planted in there shapes what we hear is we say things, well, well, that doesn't make sense in my situation. That, that just doesn't work for me. Oh, you know, it's a great ideal, but, it, but it's just not practical in real life. Why do we say that? Because we have these ideas underneath the surface of our thinking that influence our thinking, and we use them to tell God what does or doesn't apply to us. Number one idea, God wants me to be happy and feel good about myself. I'm not happy Doing what I know God wants isn't making me happy, so I will not do what God wants until he makes me happy. Happy is a great side of it, but God wants us to be whole. God wants us to be strong in character. And so the, the, the way Satan rips that seed away and does not allow it to bear fruit is by just subtly keeping on making sure we are influenced by those self-centered thinking patterns. We will blame it on all kinds of things. We're too sophisticated to blame it on God. But often what we don't realize is that we've, been, we've bought into the lie of Satan to the first humans. We've inherited that lie. And hey, listen, if Satan could make paradise, perfection, look like it was something less than what they could have, do you not think the evil one could make your life Feel like God is not giving you enough? We are more susceptible to that lie than Eve was. Psalm 109 is this great long psalm of delight in God's word, his authoritative truth. And one of the statements I, I pray regularly as I study, but also as I read God's word for myself, open my eyes so I can truly see the marvel, the glory, the wonder of your law. Paul in Romans 12 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing mind, and then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's, it's pleasing. It's perfect. It's good. 
There's always something coming into our minds from the recesses of our thinking. There's got to be something better than this. I need something different, something more than this. And we will make more Jesus about something that I think I need to make me happy. I think it's this statement in this parable that's behind Jesus' rebuke of Peter in chapter 8 when Jesus says, I have to die. And Peter says, no, that can't be what God wants. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So, how's your heart? What is it in your life about what you're saying right now? It's not enough. I need something more, something different. Chances are there is a lie from Satan deep in your thinking pattern that you need to allow being exposed in your thinking. Are you open to that? It's the next two scenarios that, the next two types of soil that reveal when and where in the circumstances in life we're most susceptible to Satan's lies. Both of these are it's not about me tests. One from one side and one from the other side. Verse 16. Others, like seeds sown in rocky places, hear the word of God and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Since they have no root, the, the truth never penetrated deep into the underlying idea structures of our minds. And when pressure and tough times come, it's like, what do we say? I didn't sign up for this. Right? Some pressure came along, you stood up for the truth, for what you thought was the truth, and everyone didn't say, wow, you're right, you're so smart, you're so good. We didn't get from God what we prayed for, and we become disillusioned and disheartened. Why does God withdraw a feeling of his presence, and why does God allow pressure? So that our roots will go deeper into him, and we will become strong in character. It's why Paul says in Romans 5 that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering, when things don't go our way, when we're not feeling it, and we just keep on obeying the truth, suffering produces perseverance. How does suffering produce perseverance? As we persevere. <laughs> it's not automatic. Produce perseverance produces character. Suffering doesn't produce character. Perseverance produces character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But it's not only the bad times. Jesus now comes at it from the other angle. There's also a good times test. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word of God. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. It's not only persecution that leads to heart failure, it's, it's being distracted by good things, making lesser things more important things. And the more we have, the more of those things that are just within reach, the more they distract us from allowing Jesus to have all of our heart. We came to Jesus, hang around church to get pumped up and use God to achieve our goals. But these more things are not more Jesus. 
In today's world, especially in a world where all of the things that please us are within our grasp and, and are, there's no social restrictions, it's the area of sexuality that is a rising heart failure factor. To come to Jesus for everything means I give to him everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 19, you're not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. And he's talking about sexuality here. What you do with your body sexually matters to God. There are boundaries for our good, even though it may not feel good for your good, but it's also for God's glory. Sexual boundaries are not about rules. They're about beauty, about glory. The reason sex is to be saved for marriage, marriage that reflects the way God designed us to fit together between a man and a woman, the reason is to be saved for that is not because it's bad, but because it is so good and precious and holy, a reflection of the wonder and beauty of a God who is intimate with us. Some of us has been tempted by cheaper alternatives and we're either wondering what Jesus would say about it or we want to avoid talking and thinking about it, or we're flaunting it and shoving it in his face and says it doesn't matter, he's okay with it, he's a God of love. And some of us are judging people who have fallen into that trap, but as Jesus said, we have a log in our own eye, our own heart. Can we all hear the word of God from the book of James? Who says, let's get rid of all the moral filth in our lives and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly receive the word of God that has been planted deep, deep, deep in our hearts for it has the power to save you. Some of us are saying as we wrap up here, I'm doing the right things. I, I, I want my heart to be right. I'm stumbling, but, I, but I, I, I do want to stumble forward. And yet the more I go, the more I realize my heart still leads to a whole lot of changing. What would Jesus say to me? Here's what Jesus would say to you. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a good crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what is sown. I want to tell you today that if you have been persisting in that quietly, even contrary to what in your heart you wonder about, if you have been persisting to that, what Jesus sees is that you are producing fruit in your character that is 30 and 60 and 100 times what has been planted. You know what the, do you know what the average rate of return was for, for seeds in those days? Somewhere between seven and ten times. Jesus is saying, you're producing way more because you are responding to the word planting in there. It's amazing growth from God's perspective. Can you believe that and hear it? Let's go back to the verse as we close, here's another thing that Jesus wants you to hear. The last statement of Jesus to those people, those two and about those people in front of everybody, the 12 and the others around him, the last statement in chapter 3 before this passage. Here are my mother, my brothers and sisters, whoever does the will of God, as Paul says later, from the heart is my mother, my brother, and my sisters. Way to go. Stick to it. 
your perseverance is producing the growth and character that is 30, 60, 100 times. Don't give up. There we are. Back to the basics. God, his word, and your heart. How's your heart? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.